Well, this morning we return to a familiar story, a story we began considering last week, the, the story of Jesus's arrest, uh, his trial, which ultimately leads to the cross. Last week, as we looked at this passage, we saw that after the supper, the Passover that Jesus celebrated with his disciples, also the night in which he instituted the Lord's Supper for us to celebrate, he took his disciples out to the Garden of Gethsemane where they spent some time in prayer. And while they were in the garden, uh, Jesus noticed that there was a crowd that was approaching them, led by Judas, along with some of the religious leaders and some of the, um, the, the uh, guards or security guards from the, the temple, uh, was what we are told is a band of Roman soldiers. A band is one-tenth of a legion. And so along with these guys were coming somewhere between 500 and 600 Roman soldiers, certainly no less than 200 soldiers approaching. Jesus goes out to them and asks who it is that they're looking for, and they said they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus replies, I am he, is what our text says, but the reality is, in, in, in the Greek it records that Jesus didn't say the he word, that's for our benefit. Jesus simply declared, I am. He took upon himself the covenant name of God, he declares himself to be the living and true God, Yahweh. And immediately as he declared himself, identified himself as God, the people were literally blown away, not just mentally and emotionally, and, but they literally fell down. The entire army just collapsed at the weight and the power of the revelation of Jesus Christ. The soldiers got up and Jesus said, let's try this again. Who are you looking for? And they said, certainly much more timidly, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he identified himself. This time they will remain standing Somewhere after that, uh, there was a skirmish, or whatever the reasons, Peter uh, decided that he needed to step in and take action, and swinging his sword, he chopped off the ear of the servant of the high priest, a man named Malchus. Jesus, with compassion, picks the ear up, but plops it back on his head, and turns and he corrects Peter for the means by which he is going to protect and advance the kingdom. And then Jesus, who in one moment's time had revealed himself to be God, demonstrated that he has the power of God, demonstrates that he has compassion as God by healing this man who had come to arrest him, then turns himself over passively. And he's arrested, and he's taken to the court of the high priest. And we'll begin our reading at that point this morning. We're going to look at beginning our reading in verse 12 of John chapter 18. Hear the word of the Lord. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, 
You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And Peter replied, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why, why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When Jesus had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked him, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. The word of our God. Let's go to him in prayer. Holy God, we do come to you with the thanksgiving for the word that you have revealed, and even more for the promise that this word that you have given us can give life as your spirit makes it alive to us and in us and through us. Open our eyes, open our minds, and open our hearts that you may instruct us and guide us into all truth, not only that we would know, but that we would experience the fullness of your grace in the person of Jesus Christ, to whom this and all of your word points us. May we see Jesus, and may we see you in Jesus. And it's in Jesus that we pray. Amen. As I was leaving church last Sunday after our services, I was walking out to my car and campers stopped me and offered a brief um, comment on, on my message. I had introduced Peter very briefly. It wasn't the focus of our, our subject and camper just offered some simple words. From William Wallace to Pee Wee Herman in one evening. And I thought that was what a wonderful description of what we see of Peter here in this story the narrative that we began last week and that we continue to see this week. Because nobody can read the story without asking themselves the question, what happened to Peter? I mean, this guy who three years ago, when Jesus says, come and follow me, left everything in order to become a disciple. This guy who, when Jesus had asked the question, who do people say that I am? And all the disciples kind of chipped in the, the, the popular ideas of who this guy was. Jesus then followed up that question by saying, but who do you say that I am? And it was Peter who was the one who answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In other words, he was the first one to get it, to recognize that this man whom they were following was the promised Messiah from the one who was promised from the beginning of Genesis chapter 3 and on. And they were in his midst and he recognized it, that he was not only the promised one, but by saying the son of the living God, declaring him to be God as well. And when Jesus was at the height of his popularity and the crowds were flocking to him and they wanted to make him king but before his time, Jesus said something that was incredibly offensive. And 
all of the crowds then turned and began walking away in disgust at what Jesus had just said. And then turning to the 12 that were closest to him, Jesus, certainly with a a hint of sadness in his voice, asked these 12, you don't want to leave me too, do you? And Peter's response to this question was, to who else would we go? You alone have the words of life. We see Peter throughout the pages of the scripture. We see him this night, and we have to wonder, how does somebody go from warrior to weenie in just a couple of hours? I mean, what is the problem here? Well, I I believe that Peter experienced what writer Gordon MacDonald would refer to as a sinkhole syndrome. Listen to how MacDonald describes a sinkhole syndrome from his modern classic book, Ordering Your Private World. And he begins with an illustration. The, The residents of a Florida apartment building awoke to a terrifying sight outside their windows. The ground beneath the street in front of their building had literally collapsed creating a massive depression that Floridians call a sinkhole. Tumbling into the ever-deepening pit were automobiles, pavement, sidewalks, lawn furniture. The building itself would obviously be the next to go. And then after that painting, he, he explains the phenomena of a sinkhole. Sinkholes occur, scientists say, when underground streams drain away during seasons of drought causing the ground at the surface to lose its underlying support. Suddenly, everything simply caves in, leaving people with a frightening suspicion that nothing, not even the earth beneath their feet, is trustworthy. And McDonald then applies this to you and to me and to what I believe to have been Peter's experience. There are many people whose lives are like one of the Florida sinkholes. It's likely that at one time or another, many of us, have perceived ourselves to be on the verge of sinkhole-like caving. In the feelings of numbing fatigue, a taste of apparent failure, or the bitter experience of disillusionment about goals and purposes, we may have sensed something within us about to give way. We feel we are just a moment from a collapse that will threaten to sweep our entire world into a bottomless pit. And sometimes there seems to be little that can be done to prevent such a collapse. And he finishes with the question, what is wrong? It's the question that we are asking ourselves as we look at this page and we consider the sinkhole syndrome. Certainly this describes what Peter was going. Everything that was with him has been swept away and now he's feeling a significant emptiness. Peter was experiencing what the scriptures teach us is true. Jeremiah, we are told, the heart is deceitful beyond all measure. Who can understand it? And Peter's heart had been playing games and now was turning on him. His heart had told him one thing, but it wasn't accurate. And now his heart was telling him something else. And he was not only confused, but he was perplexed. And this morning, what I want us to do is to consider what John is showing us through Peter's experience about the frailty of the human heart. 
And the reason that I want us to consider that is so that we might uh, have a, a more clear understanding about our need for the grace of God in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, as we look at this passage, I'm going to ask you to do something. And we, I've mentioned it before. It's actually a principle of studying the Bible, but somehow it gets neglected a lot of times. See, our tendency is to read stories like this and, and other stories that we find in the Bible when there's clearly right and there's clearly wrong or where there's clearly wisdom and there is clearly foolishness. And we identify with those who are wise and those who are good. And then we look at the people and say, how can anybody be that foolish? How can anybody be that stupid? And it's possible, as I read one commentator point out, we can out-Pharisee the Pharisees. Because we even look at the Pharisees and say, well, you know, I have my problems. But we look at the Pharisee who says, well, at least I'm not like that guy. And we look at the Pharisee and say, well, at least I'm not like you. And, um, and so it's very easy. But there's a principle of Bible study that says this, is that we really need to recognize that we're not the hero of the story. And that when we encounter characters in these stories, particularly those that are foolish and weak, we shouldn't be saying to ourselves, I'm glad I'm not like them, but rather we should be asking ourselves, in what ways am I like this person? And so this morning I want us to consider Peter as we look through this story and to see the three denials that he makes and then come back and grasp uh, uh, some things that we see evident not only here, but coming to fruition here, but in his life that may also be true of us, that create conditions for a sinkhole, emotional, spiritual, even in, in life. And so what we're going to do is we'll work through the passage uh, and to retell the story, highlighting some things that, uh, may, uh, that, that uh, may not jump off of the page, and then we'll look at Peter's life as a whole. So we'll begin our, our look at, this, at the passage in, in verse 15. That's the primary part of our focus, and we read this. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, uh, he entered uh, with Jesus into the court of the high priest. Now, one of the things that we don't necessarily think about is, regardless of the, the, the pole by which we see Peter functioning, you know, warrior and weenie, he hasn't totally abandoned Jesus, because even after Jesus gives himself over to arrest, his love for Jesus compels him to continue to follow, and he follows the, the, the guard who have taken Jesus bound into, the, into arrest, into the courtyard of the high priests. He goes with another disciple who in this passage is not named, but we know that it's John. And the reason that we know that it's John is because he's not named. In other words, in John, throughout this letter, John never names himself at all. The only identification John gives of himself in this entire passage is, at times, he refers to himself as one who was loved by Jesus. Now, at first glance, that can sound a little bit arrogant, but John is just so overwhelmed that the living and true God who has come in the flesh to walk among us would love him that this has become his identity that overshadows anything else that is in his life. And so whatever the motives he has as he's writing this gospel, he never names himself. And so therefore, that becomes the evidence that it is John that he is referred to here because he names everybody else when they are playing a significant role here. And so we have John and Peter who go and follow the guard to the, uh, to the, to the home, to the courtyard of, of the high priest. And then something interesting happens. John, we're told, breezes right by and continues to follow the card, but Peter gets stuck outside because, you know, he gets carded. They, they don't know him, and they, they ask him to 
when you stay outside. He doesn't have access to the inside of, of this courtyard. But John does. And the reason John does is we're told that he is known by the high priest, which you know, we then wonder, how does, John, how does John know the high priest? I thought these guys were all relatively insignificant. Well, some Bible scholars will tell us this. It's by tradition but, and, and not by the authority of Scripture. It can't be verified, but it, it seems plausible. Is that in the old city of Jerusalem, there was a, a place that was known as the kind of the, the spot of, of Zebedee. So you think of kind of like a, a farmer's market or whatever, and a man named Zebedee would go there, and that was the spot where he would sell his fish in, in the farmer's market. And one of the parts of his, his fishing business was to, he had the contract to supply the salted fish that he would bring from the coast and bring in for all of the wealthy and all of the powerful people who lived in Jerusalem, which would have included the high priest. Now, Zebedee was the father of John and of James. And so what scholars say is that it's very likely is that uh, Zebedee, who became a, a, a wealthy or certainly comfortable uh, fish merchant, had for years been bringing his fish into the courtyard and exchanging with the high priest and the family and the people that are there in the courtyard, and likely would have, his sons would have come with him. They would have been part of the family business. And so perhaps from his you know, early manhood, 12 years old and on, John's been coming into the courtyard of the high priest and so they knew him and so when he and Peter show up John just keeps going kind of nods he knows everybody he's made this journey a number of times he's passed through those gates a number of times but Peter gets stuck and so John has to come back out and he asks the girl who's you know guarding the gate or taking tickets at the gate just saying he's with me so let him in and she lets him in but then she has a question as she sees Peter and there's something that prompts her to say but aren't you one of this man's disciples, speaking of, of Jesus? We don't know what it was. Maybe it was because she knew John and knew John was one of his disciples. But whatever the reason, she asked him this question. And Peter's response is, I am not. His first denial. We move on to the story. And what we see as we read here is that there were the, the, basically the guards, the people that were responsible in, uh, that were there in the courtyard. It was a cold night. So they created a fire. And they're standing around the fire. It makes sense. It's easy to picture in your mind. Jesus and whoever had arrested him had taken him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Caiaphas is presently the high priest. Annas has been the high priest. And while he's not in office right now, seems to still be holding, pulling strings. He's still the one who has the power, even as his son-in-law exercises the office at this point. And so before... Jesus is taken to the functioning high priest. He goes to the real power so that he can be interviewed by him. And so he's taken on, and John seems to continue with them and is allowed access into that place. Uh, but Peter has to stay out in the broader courtyard. So he's standing around the fire, as most of us would do on a cold night. We're standing there waiting, unsure, not knowing what's coming next or what it is that we need to do. But while he's standing at that fire, some of the guys, for various reasons, decided they'd ask him, are you one of that guy's disciples? And he says, I am not. And then as we read on a little bit further, what seems to be almost immediately, but the other gospel writers tell us there was an hour between Peter's second denial and being asked a question again. He's asked yet one more time. Are you one of his followers? Are you one of his disciples? 
and Peter again expresses his denial, but what John doesn't record, what the other gospel writers do record is he didn't just simply say, no, I'm not. He went on a foul-mouthed tirade, is what we're told. Cursing, I blankety, blank, 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 and I, for sake of children and parents with children here, I won't say what the implication is, at least very specifically, but it has something to do with God bringing condemnation uh, on him and anybody else if he's not telling the truth. And so Peter is emphatic, and he is intense, and he's calling for damnation. And immediately, he hears a rooster crow. He knows that earlier that night, Jesus has predicted. Before the rooster crows, or before the rooster crows a second time, because they crow more than once, uh, as the sun is beginning to come up, but before the rooster crows a second time, you will deny me three times. And what's not recorded by John, but is recorded in Luke 22, is that at that very moment, when the rooster crows, Jesus looks at Peter. Peter sees Jesus looking at him. Their eyes meet. Likely is that Annas was done with him, told the guards to take him over to whatever part of the, of the compound that Caiaphas was at. And so as Jesus is in being shifted from one place to the next when the cock crows, he may not have been close enough to hear Peter's denial, but the rooster is loud enough that everybody is hearing that, and so he looks towards where he knows Peter is. Peter looks and sees Jesus crossing. Their eyes meet, and Peter is undone. The sinkhole syndrome has now wiped out everything that is within him. And we're told that he went outside and he wept bitterly. And the implication of that is he didn't just kind of have some tears and he wasn't just sad, but this was a grown man, big, strong, powerful, heaving, weeping, bawling, broken. Everything inside him was empty. The question that we need to ask, or the questions we need to ask, is that were there any indications in Peter's life that this kind of thing was even possible? And along with that is the idea question is, are some of those same things evident in our lives as well? I think the answer to the first question is yes. And I know the answer to the second question is yes. We see in Peter's life certain things that at first glance may even seem to be somewhat commendable. And, and, at, and at a certain level they are commendable, but at the same time they are concerning. First of which I would say is that there was a spiritual pride or a personal pride that Peter possessed that set him up for a fall. See, when Jesus had predicted that he was going to be sent away, Peter you know, promised that he would give his life up. And, and he meant it because you know, clearly you know, engage in battle in the presence of 500 Roman soldiers, you, you could lose your life. Courage was not really a problem for Peter. That wasn't his problem here, no matter how we simplify the story. Then when Peter talked about being, uh, uh, you know, when Jesus talked about being denied, I, uh, and people would, the, his disciples would all forsake him, Peter says, even if all these other guys leave you, I will never, never forsake you. 
And that's when Jesus kind of did a half smile, a painful laugh, and saying, Peter, before this night's out, you're going to deny me three times. Went right over his head, right over everybody else's head. But see, the, the boldness, the loyalty, the intense courage, all of which are tremendously cur- uh, 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 um, good, they are a mask for a pride that somebody, for somebody who believes that he is able to stand on his own strength. Simply by my own intention, my own good intentions, my personal character, personal strength, that things that I'm going to do for God, I will be able to withstand anything. He has a pride that overestimates his own ability and underestimates his own frailty and weakness. And Peter's not the only one. A lot of times, the things that we engage in, the things that bring us the most pleasure, the things by which we are known, the things by uh, the things that we, uh, the adulation that we gain, the things that people respect in us, are very real, just as Peter's. But they also mask the very real weakness and the fractures that we have in our hearts and in our souls. Remember, the heart is deceitful, beyond all measure. No one can understand. We don't even know our own hearts in that way. And we tend to think that while that's a general principle, by sheer resolve, we will be able to overcome it. Some of the support of our life is eroding, and we're not even clear because the surface looks good, but underneath, we're not dealing with what is potentially a problem. And then there's fear. Peter gets mocked, I think, somewhat unfairly in, as the story is told. Peter wasn't really afraid of this servant girl, as it's often told. I mean, he just took on the Roman army. He's pretty sure he could probably take this little, you know, five foot two, 98 pound or 90 pound, you know, 13 year old. But he was afraid of man. He was afraid of what others who were in authority might do because right now his assurance was arrested. And not only was he afraid of man and what others might do to him, I think even more he was afraid of his future because he had banked everything on this Jesus and things were not going the way that he thought they ought to go. And now he looks at the circumstances that are right before his face They do not look good. All that he had hoped in seems to be going away, and he's got to look at the future, and he is afraid of that. The future seems more near to us than God does often, because the future also has its present expressions. When circumstances are difficult, it makes many of us shake. Because he feared man and he feared the future more than he was fearing God at this moment. No matter what it looked like on the surface, undercurrent was falling away. And when it's falling away and somebody who is confident in their own commitment and in their own abilities, that they would never forsake God, that they would never disbelieve, that they would never then he's not dealing with his own heart. He's not dealing with his own soul. And so things can begin to move away, weaken, 
and he's not aware because he's looking at the surface of his commitment and the circumstances that are around him. And then we see he has misconceptions, both about God himself and the kingdom of God. And this becomes evident because even through all of this, he and the other disciples keep that. Uh, we're not going to turn there, but if you make note, if you go to Acts chapter 1, after Jesus had raised from the dead, right before he ascends, and the disciples know something is up. And, and so they know that what they know is pretty much over at this point in time. Jesus says, I'm going to be with my father. And so we're told that one of the disciples, and it's probably Peter, if Luke hadn't written it and John had, we'd have been told that it was Peter who said this. So Lord, are you now going to restore the kingdom of Israel to Israel? In other words, they had these preconceived ideas. Despite the fact of everything they had learned about God from Jesus and everything they had learned about God in the person of Jesus with whom they had spent these past three years, they still were imposing, I'll just call it bad theology, and mixed in with all of their really incredible theology that cannot be replicated because we're not taught with the voice of Jesus, but even though we have the spirit of Jesus. He mixed it in with the ideas that were not right about God, that were not right about the kingdom, and so when things didn't go the way that he thought they should, now his faith seems shaky. He doesn't know what to believe, where to hang his hat, where to plant his feet. And that's true for many of us. Because the source of Peter's bad theology is the same place that most of our bad theology comes from, which is self-serving. So he was willing to give everything to God. He was giving everything to Jesus because of what he would get out of it. And his idea was, if I invest in this, if I am part of this, not only will everything come back and I'll have my best life now, but when the kingdom comes, it'll even be better. That's not a sacrifice. That's an investment. I mean, if you, you know, invest in some you know, penny stocks and give everything you got and, and you know that it's going to come back, you're not sacrificing. You're just, you know, liquidating so that you can get something better. That's what he was doing. Now, that is the promise of the kingdom, but it wasn't going to express itself in the way that Peter thought, and frankly, the way that many of us think, at least emotionally. Because like Peter, when storms of life come and life goes in a direction that we didn't think that it should, we begin to wonder, where are you, God? What are you doing? Are you mad at me? Is this, and we begin to wonder about God, and if things don't get resolved quickly, either circumstantially, or we are humbled to recognize that while I know much, there's much more I don't know. And that I will trust in what I do know Jesus has revealed, that God has revealed, and that is my hope, and that's where I'll plant, and I don't need to know everything, I'll trust in the one who does, then we are ready for a sinkhole kind of collapse when that takes place in our lives. See, what we see summed up here is what we talk about at times is a difference between Peter's confessional faith and his functional faith. And every one of us experiences this. Peter had a rich theology in many things that were right. Certainly there were things that were superimposed, but he could pass 
any theological examination, trivial quiz, presbytery exam, whatever. No problem. You would wake him up in the middle of the night and say, what do you believe about this? He could give you the answer. But at the moment, when things were not going the way that he thought they ought to, he was not appropriating the truths and thinking about the truths and aligning the truths in a way that would bring him comfort and strength, a focus, because knowing God has promised to be with him always. He was a mess. And that happens to us. It happens to me a lot when I can pass our presbytery exam. In fact, we got to, you know, Ben and I get to antagonize a few guys tomorrow night uh, that are coming for ordination. One of whom actually wanted to be our youth director. We chose Charlie instead, but, you know, we'll... Uh... And so it really doesn't matter. I mean, I, I'm grading these tests. When the storms come, when things are going awry for what seems to me to be too long, anxiety, fear, worry, and when these things are at work, I feel an emptiness. I'm undone. I feel like everything can collapse inside on itself. And I don't think I'm alone. And the reason I don't think I'm alone is because I believe the reason that God has included the story of Peter's denials and that every gospel writer includes this in their stories is that Peter is to become like a lighthouse. And the beacon is shining out, warning us of the dangers that exist in this world and even within our own lives. We are able to see him and he becomes a, a warning to us. Not a warning of stop it, don't do it, uh, but a warning to turn to what we know to be our hope. Because these are not just incidents that are happening. God is sovereign over everything that's taking place. See, what's going on in, the, in, in Peter's life is clearly God's will. Because all we see happening is the plan of redemption coming to fulfillment. Jesus, who would lay his own life down, therefore he would be betrayed, he would be denied, he would be arrested, and then he would go and he would go through a kangaroo court, he would be crucified, and he would die. And it was that death that was prophesied and necessary for the salvation of the people that God was going to redeem. And then he would rise again, even though implausible and as ridiculous as that is, that was what was promised and that's what happened. And so we can see in Peter's life and look at this and say, the only thing going on there is exactly what God said was going to happen. He's carrying out his plan of redemption. And because Peter is not plugged into God's plan, but wanting God plugged into his plan, his life is falling apart. But my life is not quite as clear because I don't have it written down exactly what God has continued to do. Redemption has already been accomplished, but now it's being applied. God's working out his purpose for the nations. He's continuing to write. And my life and your life are chapters that God is continuing to write. But God is still working out his plan from the very beginning. But I don't know what it is, and I do exactly what Peter does. I want God to baptize my plans. And when my plans are not aligned with his plans, things seem to be awful, and then I'm subject to a sinkhole. And yet God is working all these things out. I love the way that it's expressed in our Westminster Confession of Faith. Chapter 5. Now, I know some of you are cringing right now. Is he really going to read from Westminster Confession of Faith? Yes, I am. And you'll like it, but I promise. Um, here's what we are told in the chapter on God's providence, which is the way God works out his plan. 
In the fullness of his wisdom, righteousness, and grace, God often allows his own children to be tempted in various ways and for a time to pursue the corruption of their own hearts. God does this to chastise them for their previous sins. In other words, there's consequences for our sins, and if we experience consequences, we are less prone to want to go back to them, so it is a grace uh, there. He does this to chastise them for their previous sins and to reveal to them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness in their own hearts so that they may be humbled. In addition to various other just and holy results, believers are thereby raised to a closer and more constant dependence on God for their support and are also made more alert at detecting and resisting opportunities to sin. In shorthand, it's saying God is in control of all these things, and he allows these things, part because he's working out his plan whether we understand it or not. But the things that would seem to be adversarial in our lives that God allows, it's not punishment, but it's for the purpose of bringing us to the end of ourselves, which Peter is experiencing. And being brought to an end of ourselves, we are not only humbled, but we are hungry for the grace of God because now we know what we can't do but we now trust that he must, and therefore we rest in God's grace, God's provision. And as we go through that and experience that, and more and more, we trust God at a deeper level. And he says, in the writer's confession said, bring us to a higher place. It's not some mystical thing. It's just that we are experiencing intimacy with God because we've been through this. We see this, and it affects the way that we trust. Our sufferings and the sinkhole are not purposeless. But I think even more, what I want us to leave with today as we look at Peter's life is to remember this, is that there is hope for those who have fallen. There is hope for those who fail. There is hope for those who are filled with sorrow that leads to repentance, to those who are engulfed and grieved by the emptiness in their heart that hungers for grace. There is hope in the one who loves us. And it's important that we recognize this is not the end of Peter's story. And that we recognize the way that John superimposes two stories that are mingled together, two scenes at the same time that he he writes. Because while Peter is failing, Jesus is being interrogated as part of the process of going to the cross for people like Peter who are failing and who failed. Both are in view here because Jesus is demonstrating and acting out of the love that he has for his people. And that's an important thing to remember. And there'll be two images that I want you to remember applications of this. One comes from Martin Luther. The message that he delivered to his students, some of you are familiar with it. If you've seen the movie Luther that came out, I remember the more recent one, uh, late 90s and early 2000s, there's a, a wonderful scene there that I can't do justice to, but I'll do my best. But here's what Luther says to his students as he's lecturing, preaching. And he says this, so when the devil throws your sins in your face, which is what's happening when we feel empty, When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? 
because I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. So there's a voice that keeps telling you, you're a loser. You screwed up. You're nothing. Because life's not going the way it ought to be. Luther's example to us is to tell that voice, oh yeah? Well, who cares? It's not that I don't deserve this. I acknowledge that. In fact, it's probably worse than what we're being accused of in our own minds. But it doesn't really matter because we know one who has suffered in our place, paid our penalty, has died, rose again, and has promised that we will be with him. And so the end of your story is not your failure, your fear, or your faithlessness. See, the scriptures tell us that even when we are faithless, he will remain faithful because he will never deny himself. The other image comes from an old hymn. It's a hymn that I had hoped that we would learn today. Isaiah would have taught it to us had I given him sheet music for it. Apparently that's important um, for our musicians. We will learn it. It was written in 1765 by a, a British hymn writer by the name of Joseph Griggs. And the hymn, in many hymn books, is titled as Jesus and Shall It Ever Be? And there's a more contemporary version of it. Same lyrics, but it's uh, by a guy named Mo Leverett, who I've known, and Ben probably knows him. Um, and his is just called Ashamed of Jesus. And what Griggs does is he, he begins with a question. Jesus, shall it ever be a mortal man ashamed of thee? Ashamed of thee whom angels praise, whose glories shine through endless days? It's a rhetorical question, but we know the answer, and the answer is, should it be? No, but it is way, way too often. And then Griggs goes several verses explaining the foolishness and the inappropriateness of being ashamed of Jesus. And then he comes to a verse where kind of tongue-in-cheek he, he makes this statement. He says, ashamed of Jesus? Yes, I may. When I have not, no guilt to wash away, no tear to wipe, no good to crave, no fears to quell, and no soul to save. So when you're already in heaven, you could be ashamed of Jesus, but you wouldn't. It's just absolutely ridiculous because the only way you're getting to that point is because of that. But he finishes it up with this, and, and this is the mental picture that I want you to walk away with today. I want you to think about the words here and indelibly imprint them on your mind and come back to them at the moments where you feel like you're going to collapse or the moments after you have collapsed. In the last verse of this hymn, he says this, Till then, nor is my boasting in vain, Till then I boast a Savior slain. And oh, may this my glory be, that Christ my God is not ashamed of me. See, the look that Jesus gave to Peter, I look at that look like the look I would be given to Peter if I'm the one who's in chains and being hauled off to a cross. And no doubt there was a sadness in Jesus' eyes Rather than condemnation, there was compassion. Because Jesus was doing the very thing that he came to save people like Peter, like you, and like me. It was not condemnation. And 
And we need to recognize that that is the way that Jesus deals with us because the very purpose of his coming was to deal with people like us, people who are broken, people who have fallen, people who have failed, people who feel empty in their brokenness. And rather than just stop it and pretend like you don't have those weaknesses or that you never experience it, I want to encourage you to embrace the reality of it and then turn and see the face of Jesus as he's looking at Peter to think of these lyrics and recognize what is stated here is true. It's not a matter of whether we at times are ashamed of Jesus. Stupid as it is, we are. What matters is he is not ashamed of his own. And one of the things, and I'll leave you with this, is that we need to see the fullness of the story that we looked at last week and this week is this, that every I am not that Peter utters has already previously been met with and overshadowed by the I am of Jesus, meaning he is the fullness of He is God. He is the gift of God. He is the promise of God. He is the reconciler with God. I am always wins. Father, give us grace to believe. To fill us with that grace that strengthens, that guides, that sometimes breaks and remakes. Renew us in grace. Makes us strong, not in ourselves, but in you. We pray in Christ. Amen.